Those societies that do not protect such liberties, nations that trample on this freedom, provide fertile ground for poverty, insecurity, war and terror, and violent radical movements and activities. Welcome to the Humble Jurist Podcast by the J. Reuben Clark Law Society. I'm Adam Belinsky, and you just heard a soundbite from Katrina Sweat, president of the Lantos Foundation and former chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. She addressed Law Society members at a worldwide fireside in 2015 and discussed what she called unprecedented assaults on religious freedom and how religious freedom directly correlates with prosperity. Without further ado, let's hear more of what she had to say. I'd like to begin by painting a picture of what religious freedom abuses look like. This is not an abstract right we are seeking to protect, and I'd like to share examples of people who have suffered real losses from having this indispensable right denied. I will go on to highlight the magnitude of humanity's loss when religious freedom is denied by describing the majesty and scope of this fundamental right. Religious freedom remains a deeply misunderstood right, and so part of what I hope to do tonight is to clear away misconceptions that many people have. And finally, we'll try to take a look around the windy corner we find ourselves at right now to think about what the future might hold. There is one point I would like to make that really can't be stressed enough. It is this. When anyone's religious freedom is violated, other human rights invariably are abused as well. That's because, in the end, human rights are indivisible. All of them are tied together. All of them are based on the premise that every human being has dignity and worth, which must be honored and respected. So with that in mind, let's begin. More than three years ago, in March of 2011, Shabazz Bhatti, a Christian who was Pakistan's Minister for Minority Affairs, was murdered by the Pakistani Taliban for speaking out against his country's blasphemy law and the death sentence for blasphemy given to Aisha Bibi, a Christian woman. But Minister Bhatti was not the only Pakistani who forfeited his life that year for those reasons. Two months earlier, Salman Tasir, the Muslim governor of Punjab province, met the same fate for his own courageous opposition to the same law into that same Bibi verdict. As I stand before you this evening, I know of at least 18 other Pakistanis who are on death row for blasphemy and 20 who are serving life sentences. But religious persecution is hardly limited to one country or one type of violation. In August of 2007, a week before the visit, the first visit of my predecessors to Turkmenistan, the government of that country released from jail a national Muslim leader former Chief Mufti Nasrullah ibn Abdullah. Our commission repeatedly had called for his release since he was sentenced to a 22-year prison term on trumped-up treason charges three years earlier. And what was his crime? He courageously refused to display a book of sayings by the country's dictator next to the Quran in mosques across the nation. Again, the Mufti thankfully was released from prison on the eve of Yusuf's visit. But another noble soul, Gao Zhisheng, one of China's most respected human rights attorneys, has not been so fortunate. Gao's brave defense of people of various faiths continues to cost him dearly. After disbarring Gao, China's government imprisoned and tortured him and concealed his whereabouts for more than two years. 
When they finally released him this past August, he had lost nearly 50 pounds and half his teeth were missing or rotting away. As I speak now, Gao is confined to a remote village while security agents harass his relatives, monitor his reading material, and prevent him from receiving vitally needed medical treatment. And who among us can forget the disturbing story of the Iranian pastor, Saeed Abedini, a US citizen who has been serving an eight-year sentence since January 2012 on the bogus charge of threatening Iran's national security. His real so-called crime was his involvement in Iran's persecuted house church movement. Many others remain imprisoned in Iran for their religious beliefs or actions that reflect these beliefs, including the Baha'i Seven, leaders of that country's Baha'i community who have been incarcerated since 2008 for heading a religious movement that Iran's theocratic leaders seek to crush. Over the past months, we have all seen the horrifying news coming out of Iraq and Syria, where ISIS has seized wide sections of both countries and has launched a reign of terror against non-Muslim religious minorities, from Yazidis to Christians, while also persecuting Shia and Sunni Muslims who dare to dissent from its perverse interpretations of Islam. In recent days, we watched in horror as homegrown Islamist terrorists in France gunned down the journalists and satirists of Charlie Hebdo and shoppers at the hypercaché kosher market, seeking to terrorize a great city in the heart of Europe into submission to their perverted vision of Islam. And finally, in Saudi Arabia, the liberal blogger and human rights activist, Raif Badawi, has been sentenced to one 1,000 lashes and 10 years in prison for daring to criticize the nation's clerics. This man is due to be lashed each week for 20 weeks until this barbaric and brutal sentence is complete or until he is dead. Based on these and so many other cases, two points are abundantly clear. First, when religious freedom and other human rights are violated, real people suffer whether their names are etched on gravestones or their faces stare at us from behind prison bars, we must never forget them. And second, the right of religious freedom is far broader, far more inclusive, and far more sweeping in scope than most people realize. It embraces the full range of thought, belief, and behavior. And religious freedom is equally as deep as it is broad, honoring and upholding the claims of conscience. How broad and inclusive is religious freedom as a human right? Support for it means opposing every form of coercion or restraint on people's ability to choose and practice their beliefs peacefully. Contrary to prevailing notions in some circles, promoting religious freedom does not mean imposing beliefs on other people. Quite the contrary. It is about protecting everyone's right to believe and remain true to their deepest convictions. Religious freedom applies to the holders of all religious beliefs, bar none. Thus, the commission on which I serve fights diligently for the right of members of every religious group, from Muslims to Christians, Jews to Buddhists, Hindus to Baha'is, Yazidis to Falun Gong, to practice their faith nonviolently. But this critical human right is even broader than that. Not only does it apply to those who hold religious beliefs, it also extends to those who reject religious beliefs altogether. 
When atheists or agnostics are targeted for expressing their convictions, they too are victims of religious persecution. They too merit our steadfast support and protection. Besides protecting every belief, religious or otherwise, freedom of religion or belief is itself a conviction that is unbounded by geography or nation. It is not the exclusive preserve of any one country. It is a universal value endorsed by a majority of countries in Article 18 of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as in subsequent agreements. Like every other human right, religious freedom is the birthright of humanity. And finally, religious freedom is broad and deep enough to merit a seat at the table with economic or security concerns in any nation as it conducts its affairs with the world. In short, religious freedom is a pivotal human right that is relevant to literally every person in the world. It means nothing less than the right of every one of us, you and me and everyone else, to think as we please, believe or not believe as our conscience leads, and live out our beliefs openly, peacefully, and without fear. Understanding all of this is essential to spurring our country to do more to advance this freedom around the world. Such advocacy and support of religious freedom is especially crucial today when religious freedom is under serious pressure in so many places. According to a recent study, 76% of the world's population, that is 5 billion people, live in countries in which this freedom is restricted in serious ways, either by the government or by societal actors. Clearly, abuses of religious freedom must never go unchallenged. This is not just the opinion of the United States. It is a fundamental principle of international human rights law. As I mentioned, in 1948, the world community created and adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, including Article 18, which deals specifically with freedom of religion or belief. Since 1966, the governments of 167 countries have signed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, a binding treaty that includes protections similar to those of Article 18. The United States' commitment to this foundational human right reflects our own history of people fleeing persecution in Europe and coming to these shores so they could live out their convictions. Later, the First Amendment to our Constitution included firm protection for religious freedom. But Americans always have been concerned about others people, other people's freedoms as well. And so in 1998, IRFA, the International Religious Freedom Act, was signed into law. IRFA created a special office in the State Department to defend this right abroad. It also created USERF, the commission on which I serve. USERF, as has been mentioned, is an independent bipartisan federal government body charged with using these same international standards I just mentioned to measure how governments abroad handle religious freedom. USERF issues reports highlighting abuses and makes recommendations about how our country can best respond to these violations. In the course of our efforts, USERF has found at least four kinds of violations which governments are culpable of state hostility, state sponsorship, state enforcement, and state failure. Let's talk about them for a quick minute. State hostility involves the government actively persecuting people due to their beliefs. State sponsorship refers to the government actively promoting and sometimes even exporting ideas and propaganda, often of a violent extremist nature, that include hostility to the religious freedom of others. 
State enforcement refers to the government actively applying laws and statutes, such as anti-blasphemy codes to individuals, often members of religious minorities. And state failure means that the government is neglecting to take action to protect those whom others are targeting due to their beliefs. When it comes to state hostility towards religions, some of these governments, like North Korea or China, are secular tyrannies which consider all religious belief as potential rivals of state secularist ideology, such as communism. Others, like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Sudan, are religious tyrannies which enthrone one religion or religious interpretation over all others, which they see as rivals to the one they favor. And still others, like Russia, are hybrids of secular and religious. In North Korea, the government severely represses religious activity, and individuals who defy it are arrested, imprisoned, tortured, or executed. In China, the government continues its persecution of Tibetan Buddhists and Uyghur Muslims. To stem the growth of independent Catholic and Protestant groups, Beijing has arrested leaders and shut down churches. There have been reports of officials even going after registered churches, tearing down crosses and church steeples. Members of Falun Gong, as well as those of other groups deemed evil cults, face long jail terms, forced renunciations of faith, and torture in detention. In Iran, the government has executed people for, quote, waging war against God, while relentlessly targeting reformers among the Shia Muslim majority, as well as religious minorities, including Sunni and Sufi Muslims, Baha'is, and Christians. Pastor Abadini remains in prison, and the regime has stirred up anti-Semitism and promoted Holocaust denial. Saudi Arabia completely bans the public expression of all religions other than Islam. Not a single church or other non-Muslim house of worship exists anywhere in the country. In addition, the kingdom enthrones its own interpretation of Sunni Islam over all others and has detained individuals for apostasy, blasphemy, and sorcery. Sudan continues its policy of Islamization and Arabization, imposing Sharia law on Muslims and non-Muslims alike, using amputations and floggings for acts of so-called indecency and immorality, and arresting Christians for proselytizing. And finally, Russia has a secular government, but favors the Moscow Patriarchate of the Russian Orthodox Church while persecuting competitors, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, or those it deems a threat to the state, such as Muslims. Regarding state sponsorship of radical ideology, which targets others' religious freedom, Saudi Arabia continues to export its own extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam through textbooks and other literature which teach hatred and even violence toward other religious groups. Regarding state enforcement, Egypt and Pakistan enforce anti-blasphemy or anti-defamation codes with religious minorities bearing the brunt of the enforcement. And finally, regarding state failure to protect religious freedom, the abysmal record of the governments of Burma, Egypt, Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Syria exemplify nations which do not protect their citizens against religious-related violence. You can imagine I'm really popular when I travel. <laughs> I have such flattering things to say about so many countries. <laughs> I'm not miss, uh, miss popularity when I go abroad. Um, in Burma, sectarian violence and severe abuses against Christians and Muslims continue with impunity. The plight of the Rohingya Muslims is especially alarming and heartbreaking, as countless numbers are stateless, homeless, and endangered. 
In Egypt, Cairo has failed repeatedly over time to protect religious minorities, including Coptic, Orthodox, and other Christians, Baha'is, Shia Muslims, and dissident Sunni Muslims from violence, or they have failed to bring the perpetrators to justice. And impunity, you know, is a very, very toxic um, thing uh, and undermines rule of law in incalculable ways. In Iraq, the rise of ISIS is a major consequence of the government's continued failure to protect the lives and freedoms of non-Muslims, minorities such as Christians and Yazidis, as well as Shia Muslims and dissenting Sunni Muslims. In Nigeria, as Boko Haram attacks Christians as well as fellow Muslims, the government has failed to prosecute perpetrators of religiously related violence that has killed more than 14,000 Nigerians, both Christian and Muslim, since the turn of the century. In Pakistan, the government's continued failure to protect Christians, Ahmadis, Shia, and Hindus has created a climate of impunity, resulting in further vigilante violence. And in Syria, a three-year civil war triggered by the Assad regime's refusal to respect human rights and embrace reform has devolved into a sectarian religious conflict combining the worst aspects of state tyranny with state failure to protect life and freedom. While the regime continues to target Sunni Muslims, terrorist opponents like ISIS target those on all sides, from Sunnis and Alawites to Christians who oppose their dictates. These four types of violations suggest a strong correlation between the lack of religious freedom and the lack of social harmony and stability. Indeed, a number of studies show that while countries that honor and protect religious freedom and its related rights are more peaceful, more stable, more prosperous, and I would add parenthetically, women in those societies have much higher status and standard of living. Those societies that do not protect such liberties, nations that trample on this freedom, provide fertile ground for poverty, insecurity, war and terror, and violent radical movements and activities. We see the negative consequences of not promoting freedom of religion or belief when looking at nations USERF has recommended that the State Department designate as countries of particular concern, or CPCs, marking them as the world's most egregious religious freedom abusers. These countries, Burma, China, Egypt, Eritrea, Iraq, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Vietnam, and Uzbekistan. A striking number of these countries, if you think about that list, continue to have serious issues with stability and security and continue to pose serious threats to our own stability and security. Thus, it is essential that we promote religious freedom, not only because it reflects our values and international human rights standards, but because it can enhance the security of our own country and that of the world, especially in the struggle against violent religious extremism. You know, I would go so far as to say we will not be able to meet the challenge, the deadly challenges facing us posed by religious extremism and violent jihad and other threats to our safety and security unless we help societies to get the religious freedom peace right for themselves. It is not possible to build a stable and a strong and a secure and a decent society without doing so. I sometimes use um, the analogy of a mathematical equation. 
I myself am not a mathematician. I confessed that earlier to some of my colleagues up here on the stand. In fact, I'm thoroughly intimidated by all things mathematical. But I have always been in awe of those who can stand in front of five enormous blackboards with a multitude of numbers and signs and squiggles parading across that blackboard and knowing that it leads to some extraordinary result, final conclusion. I will never, ever be able to do that, certainly not in this life. But even though I am not a mathematician, I know enough to understand that if you get something wrong, if you make a mistake early in the equation, it does not matter how long and how hard you work on the rest of it, the sum will never come right. Unless you go back and fix your error, unless you go back and get it right early on in the equation, you cannot get to the conclusion you seek. And so it is with religious freedom. Societies cannot hope to skip over that step and think that they will somehow achieve stability and decency and justice and a bright future. They have to go back and get that piece of the equation right. I'm convinced of it. I'd like to close by asking a fundamental question. What does the future hold for religious freedom and its related human rights? As of today, the landscape around the world admittedly looks bleak, but does the future have to be like the present? I can answer that question with an emphatic no. Yes, the struggle for these rights remains an uphill one, but in our time, the calls for protection of religious freedom and its related rights are being amplified as never before in history. Thanks to an unprecedented information revolution and the enormous power of the internet and social media, the calls for freedom are being heard across countries and continents, demanding an end to the status quo of repression and extremism. The message they send is unmistakable. Religious freedom matters and must be upheld. It is time, it is past time, for governments around the world to hear and heed this message. From the dictators of China and North Korea to the terrorists of ISIS and the Pakistan Taliban, there is nothing they fear more than the cause of religious freedom. Yes, I know. When Yazidis and Christians, Tibetan Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims, Baha'is and Jews, Hindus and Falun Gong are oppressed, it is hard to see the fear in their oppressors' eyes. But the fear is there. We can see it in their actions, in their repeated use of brute force to silence and intimidate others. Clearly, they fear thought and debate. They fear deliberation and discussion. They fear sunlight and scrutiny. They fear transparency and truth. And so, of course, they fear the internet. They fear Facebook. They fear iPhones. They fear us. They fear their own people, and they probably fear each other. But most of all, they fear the future. Yes, the enemies of freedom remain formidable, and the fight for freedom remains uphill and can be exhausting. The struggle against injustice is long, and it is arduous. But let us take comfort in the wise words of the late Robert F. Kennedy. He said, each time we strike out against injustice, we send forth a tiny ripple of hope, 
and crossing each other, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mighty walls of oppression and resistance. I'd like to close with a story that I think beautifully illustrates the profound connection between religious freedom and all the other precious constitutional and human rights that we so cherish. John Wycliffe, the English philosopher, theologian, reformer, and preacher, undertook to translate the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into the common vernacular in the late 1300s. And he did so in the face of enormous opposition and even persecution from the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. To give you a sense of how deeply they opposed this effort to put the word of God in the hands of ordinary people in a language they could understand, um, after Wycliffe died, he did die a peaceful death, but after he died, not all who shared his mission were that fortunate. His bones were dug up. They were put on trial. They were convicted of heresy, burned, and sent down the River Thames um, as a warning to others who might engage in such a revolutionary action. But despite the threats, despite the persecution, despite all the obstacles, he persisted in this mission. And when his work was done, he wrote the following words in the flyleaf of that first Bible. These words are going to sound familiar to you, but not in this context. He wrote, The translation is complete and shall make possible government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, as Americans, we think of those words. They are indelibly associated with our greatest president in a time of ultimate tragedy for our nation, facing an unimaginable battlefield. Those words of hope, but they have this more ancient patrimony. We now cannot know precisely what Wycliffe meant when he wrote those words, but I believe he was illuminating for all of us the profound insight that when men and women are free to pursue and understand truth for themselves, they become empowered to build societies that honor the claims of conscience and the fundamental liberties and rights of all people. If you wish to listen to our entire remarks, visit the Law Society YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Humble Jurist. Till next time, be humble and just.